Okay, good afternoon everyone and um, welcome back to the second session in this stream um, of workshop seminars looking at the issue of nuclear weapons. Um, my name is David McCoy, I'm the director of MEDACT. Um, really pleased to have three fantastic speakers for this session here. We're going to have each of them speak for between 10 and 15 minutes. I think what we'll do is we'll run through um, all the presentations and then open up for a plenary discussion, um, question mm. and answer and uh, possibly some debate as well. Um, what we have um, for us uh, starting off is Kate Hudson who will be well known to many people as the figurehead of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, we've got Paul Ingram who's the director of BASIC um, which helped to coordinate the uh, production of the Trident Commission um, and we've got Richard Norton Taylor who's a well-known journalist um, on matters to do with defense and security and um, so I think we'll just kick straight off with you Kate thank you very much for coming to speak to us okay. thanks very much indeed and thanks for welcoming me here today in that nice way um, it, this couldn't be more timely this discussion about tribal replacement and in my opinion, and the opinion of many others, this is a unique moment of opportunity for us who wish to get rid of Trident. CND's been around since 1958. We've always had the goal of scrapping Britain's nuclear weapons, working towards global disarmament. And I think there are many factors which suggest that we have a better opportunity now to achieve that goal than we ever have done before. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, um, there is a technical reason why that is a possibility. As I'm sure you're all aware, the current system, the Trident system, is reaching the end of its shelf life. Um, they will start to go out of commission in 2028. So if we want to remain a nuclear weapon state, there has to be a decision to build new nuclear weapon submarines. So that's really the essence of why Trident um, is really up the political agenda at the moment. There has to be a decision by government and or parliament on whether or not we replace Trident. That decision is expected to take place next year. Um, a word of caution about that, I know we're, we're all hoping or expecting that we'll, there will be a vote in Parliament, uh, just to let you all know if you don't already, it doesn't actually have to go to Parliament, government could just decide. But certainly uh, since uh, the issue first came to Parliament in 2007, there's been a kind of general promise from government that it will come back to Parliament. So we're expecting that decision to take place in 2016. In terms of when that might take place, uh, the best information I have is that Fallon wants it to take place after the May elections, but by the end of the year. So who knows? Um, but that is our best estimate of when it might take place. So there is that opportunity. It also seems to me that we are facing an upsurge in opposition to Trident and an increased profile in, about Trident for a number of reasons. Um, and I'm sure many of you will have been involved with those reasons to some extent or another. So firstly, in terms of popular opposition, since 2008, 
and the financial crisis and austerity and belt tightening and cutting <coughs> spending, the question of spending over £100 billion on Trident has been something which has occupied people far more. You know, when it's just Trident nuclear weapons in the abstract, it doesn't impact on us directly. Not so many people were thinking about it. But since then, and direct comparisons as to what that money could buy instead, more people have been concerned. More trade unions have been concerned. More anti-cuts groups have been concerned. And I can say here, Sophie, in a MEDAC environment, that CND's most popular slogan and most popular T-shirt over the last few years has been NHS, not Trident. You know, it's something that uh, everyone uh, impacts, ev that impacts upon everybody. So in terms of public opinion, there has been a steady and significant shift against <coughs> Trident. So if you take polls on average over the last almost a decade, they have generally said that a majority is opposed either to the replacement of Trident and or Trident itself. So that's a significant shift. Um, there's also um, been a kind of a dynamic, a kind of grassroots popular dynamic that has come out of that. This was expressed pre-election um, as the kind of anti-Trident, anti-austerity parties, uh, the Green Party, Plaid Cymru, the SNP, sort of anti-Trident surge pre-election uh, manifested in the Green surge at that time to some extent. And then since the election, obviously we've seen that popular surge given expression through the election of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, one of the leading figures in CND, as leader of the Labour Party. And of course, you know, I'm not a Labour Party member, but I'm sure we're all pleased that he received 60% of the vote to become Labour leader on an absolutely unequivocal anti-Trident platform. And since he's been in that position, he has absolutely held firmly to that and of course has challenged the whole notion of deterrence, so-called, uh, through his assertion that it, obviously he would not be prepared to press the button and destroy the world. You know, um, he's kind of, is, to a certain extent, kind of bust open uh, the narrative around Trident and so-called <coughs> deterrence. But it's not just from the kind of the popular opinion and the kind of movement and the grassroots and so on that this anti-Trident perspective has come. We've also seen it, of course, from some figures in the military. You know, there are other people in the military than that chief of the defence staff um, who was inappropriately commenting on uh, nuclear policy <coughs> at the weekend. Major General Patrick Causingly, for example, who was um, uh, leader of the Desert Rats and so on, he had an article in the Times earlier this week saying Trident was irrelevant and should be scrapped. His voice is added to a number of senior military figures. So the military, at best, is divided uh, on this question, obviously because of the opportunity cost of Trident replacement and what that could buy in military terms. So that kind of um, previous perhaps cons what was seen to be a kind of consensus has broken down as well. And then of course um, you will probably have um, noticed the uh, work and the opinions coming forward of Crispin Blunt MP who is the Tory chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He also has a military background. 
he's the one uh, who just a couple of weeks ago suggested that CND's estimates for how much driving the place will cost were actually a bit on the conservative side. We've been saying 100 billion, he said no actually it's 167 billion and he is completely opposed to driving replacement. So it's not as if we are somehow this kind of focal moralising minority. You know, we are now the new majority in society. What we talk is the new common sense. And I think it's incumbent upon those uh, dwindling number of people, albeit in higher levels in the establishment, um, it's incumbent upon those people who want to keep Trident to explain why on earth we should do that, why on earth we should retain a Cold War weapons system in a changing world in the 21st uh, century with its new security challenges. So I would argue that the Cold War consensus around nuclear weapons is broken. I think if you look at the Labour Party, they're about to announce um, that they're going to have a defence review to consider Trident amongst other things, I think it's highly likely that their policy will change and they will adopt an anti-Trident replacement policy. Uh, we've got an indicator of that, of course, from what's taken place in Scotland, where, as we know, the majority of the population is overwhelmingly against, the SNP is against, and now the Scottish Labour Party has changed its position, and it is also against. That is fantastic news, and that has to be an indicator of what the situation will be uh, in the Labour Party policy debate itself. And then, of course, uh, you, I don't know if you noticed that in the Scottish Parliament there was an <coughs> unprecedented situation where the SNP put forward an anti-Trident motion that was amended by Labour in Scotland, the SNP accepted it, and they voted together against Trident. You know, that is the kind of situation, the kind of cross-party political alliances that we need to see against Trident. And that is changing and challenging everything. So, what are the arguments for Trident then, when all good sense would suggest that we would be better off without it? Well, um, there's the jobs argument, of course. Um, if you followed Labour Party conference, you'll have seen that the GMB and Unite uh, didn't want that to come to conference for a, a decision and possible policy change because they're concerned about the jobs of their members. Um, I should say that Scottish Unite uh, did vote uh, for uh, scrapping Trident um, in the Scottish Labour Party conference, so they changed their position. Um, it's worth pointing out that in terms of investment for jobs, over £100 billion to sustain 6,000 jobs, which is basically what it is, is not a good jobs rate of return on that investment. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that one of the things that Jeremy Corbyn is committed to is having a defence diversification agency which will have work with the workforce in those sectors to ensure <coughs> that alternative investment or in investment in alternative sectors in the economy, maybe sustainable energy production, housing and all those sorts of things will provide more jobs um, at a skilled level. So that uh, concern, which is a legitimate concern, uh, can be resolved. Um, and then secondly, there's the uh, notion that somehow it is a deterrent. Um, I'm always suspicious when people don't call things by their name. It is a nuclear weapon system, so why call it a deterrent? You know, there are many things which deter things. Um, seems to, be, to me to be inappropriate. 
I suppose it's a, a way of making it sound like a nice thing. Um, I know that other speakers will perhaps talk about this in more detail, but it seems to me to be absolutely absurd that we should base our defence policy on something which is basically a game of bluff. Will they, won't they press the button, you know? I mean, it's just, that's not um, what we should be basing our security policy on. And then finally, um, status. This is the other thing which is very often referred to by, um, by people in uh, the higher levels. Um, Blair, in his autobiography, um, of course, said that uh, there were good cases for having it and not having it, but he was convinced that we should have it because of our status in the world. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's an unacceptable level of spending to have a weapon of mass destruction to sustain our status in the world. In fact, amongst whom is that status um, brought from, given that over 190 odd countries don't have nuclear weapons and think we should get rid of them? Wouldn't we have higher status if we actually got rid of them or did something useful uh, with the money? So I think that the arguments for don't stack up and they are not convincing or compelling in the least. Um, and I would um, assert that increasingly the pro-Trident position is a marginal Tory position. It is going to be exposed as that as the Labour uh, defence review and internal discussion continues um, and that we have to contribute to the marginalisation of Trident. So we have this extraordinary opportunity ahead of us. There are all these reasons why we can push forward and win on this and we have to do that collectively. Um, and if I could conclude, Chair, by telling you about an opportunity uh, for us to do this together. Um, on Saturday the 27th of February, CND is calling a national Stop Trident demonstration. We've got plenty of time to make it enormous, to ensure that it actually um, conveys to government and to the country as a whole the scale of opposition to Trident. This is what we have to do. And I am pleased to say that CND is not alone in organising this. Uh, the Quakers, for example, our hosts today, are supporting the demonstration. Pax Christie is supporting it. War on want. Stop the War Coalition, People's Assembly Against Austerity, Compass. The list is growing virtually every day. And so we have to work together to ensure we have the biggest possible mobilisation for this. And I invite you all and urge you all to join with us in ensuring we have a fantastic turnout. And I have some cards here on the table if you'd like to take them away with you, give them to your friends, colleagues, whatever. And of course, if you want more, please do contact the CME <coughs> office. Thank you very Great. much. Thank you, Kate. We'll hold off on questions. We'll take the next two speakers. Paul, do you want to kick off? And then Richard. Um, <coughs> I've spent a lot of time in A&E the last couple of weeks. Uh, my, my daughter knocked all her front teeth out. Um, my, my mum almost died last Saturday. Uh, and my brother-in-law, uh, <coughs> my, my wife's brother, um, has uh, attempted suicide. Um, so I'm very familiar in the immediate term to, uh, to the issue about dealing with mental and physical emergencies. 
Um, this is this what we're talking about at the moment is is at the other end of the scale uh, in the sense that it's about prevention, uh, and and this is where I see this as a significant mental, collective mental health issue that we're dealing with. Now uh, there are significant attractions uh, around nuclear deterrence. Um, it fits with people's sense, their individual sense of how the world works, right? Because um, it's better to threaten somebody and then they do what you want rather than actually beating them over the head. You know, it feels better. Um, but, uh, but it has all sorts of negative consequences. Um, when we're dealing with bullies, if we use their language, then we actually descend to their, to their way of being. Um, if, we, if we deal with bullies in political ways, we, we destroy the sense of uh, a constructive politics. There are significant problems as well around the actual weapons themselves. Now, I'm not going to give you a long lecture about all the different dimensions in which this is a problem, but, uh, but I'm going to focus on actually on the military utility dimension, because it is relevant. Nuclear weapons are too big. They're simply too big to be useful. And that's why we've got a lot of military actually who are starting to question them. You actually need a lot of weapons in, in between, in the ladder of escalation, before you get anywhere near nuclear weapons. So they're not relevant to virtually every threat. In fact, they go against the trend of military technology, which is small, smart, autonomous weapons that attempt at least to minimise collateral damage. The other thing is, is that actually using weapons to destroy large quantities of, 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 of land is not particularly useful in a conflict. Uh, if you look at the Second World War, did the bombing of London actually mean that the British people were cowed and uh, actually thought about surrendering? No, it did quite the opposite. And in fact, the bombing of Germany probably did the opposite too. No, bombing large numbers of citizens causes a lot of damage and hurt, but it actually isn't very relevant from a military perspective. But the most obvious and important thing around nuclear weapons, of course, is the risk. The obvious risks that we've talked about, but the risks also towards, um, towards effective international relationships. It's a risk as well towards, um, towards the, uh, the uh, uh, coherence of this country, for example. So we're looking at the possibility that a weapon system designed to defend the Union will actually come to be its, it, uh, cause its dissolution. Uh, we've already ha seen the uh, referendum in Scotland almost go towards, um, towards dissolving. The, the, this, this issue has not gone away. And as the EU referendum starts to build up, it's quite possible it's looking increasingly possible that this country will vote to leave the EU. Where will that leave Scotland, and will they, will they use Trident as another, um, as another reason for, for leaving Britain? And then if Scotland does leave, where does Trident go? These are, these are serious political risks that are not being considered at the moment. There are risks around our relationship with much of the world as the humanitarian impacts uh, debate builds up. Um, there was a report um, that was uh, published here this week, Don't bank, bank on the Bomb, I think they're speaking in the next session, that, um, th that has received quite a lot of publicity this week around the, w the association, the relationship between nuclear weapons and unacceptable behaviour. 
Nuclear weapons are effectively a dead weight on the way we relate to each other as human beings. Internationally, it means that we rely far more upon force and savagery to try and get what we want. The concept of threatening mass annihilation of one's, of one's enemies means that it, 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 it has knock-on reverberations around how we treat other people. So that when a drone goes off and, and conduct, conducts an assassination, you have the Prime Minister going out there and trying to claim credit as quickly as possible. You also have a situation where these nuclear weapons become seen as currencies of power in the world. You are a meaningful player if you are able to incinerate large numbers of people. This undermines the sense of progress, it undermines the ability for us to move forward as a species and actually overcome the scourge of war. It means it's much more difficult to collaborate on issues such as climate change, world poverty, financial stability, a whole host of issues that are increasingly global, global in nature. So even those people who think nuclear weapons are irrelevant and, and don't actually impact upon their lives, they care about other issues for which nuclear weapons are deeply relevant. They give us a sense, bizarrely, of invulnerability. There's a sense in which we can go off and we can fight wars in, on other sides of the planet because ultimately we can also destroy them completely with our weapons. That bizarre sense of invulnerability is a very strong pointer towards the collective mental health issue <coughs> that I began with. Because these are mindsets. It's about seeing the world. If you, if, you, if you see the world as a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you see the world in terms of threat, you will justify nuclear weapons. If you see as they will do in the Strategic Defence and Security Review that will be published in just over a week's time. If you see growing threats coming from Russia, if you see growing threats around the world, it will seem that the only tools you have are the tools to respond to those threats. We have to actually wake up and go beyond the idea that this is just a waste of money, although it is a waste of money. We have to go beyond the idea that if there is a risk of the use of nuclear weapons, then it is a, a catastrophic and awful, though it is catastrophic and awful, and it is unacceptable that we have this risk. We have to actually see these weapons as a significant problem, not just as an irrelevance, a significant problem for the way we relate to the rest of the world and to each other. Because what does it say about who we are? What does it say about how we can exist? If we, if we spend a lot of our time fixing people up in hospitals, if we spend a lot of our time um, uh, uh, giving a, uh, a medical advice to people in our, in our um, GP surgeries, when we're actually, at the same time, supporting a system that actually threatens annihilation at such a massive way, it, it, it needs greater emphasis on the prevention and that means reaching out to countries like Russia, to people like Putin and recognising that they have a narrative too that justifies their possession of nuclear weapons, that justifies their development of massive long-range cobalt nuclear weapons um, uh, torpedoes or, or the latest long-range bomber or spending billions on 
on any number of systems that ultimately drive the fear that creates this problem that we're dealing with today. Uh, the um, military people have always said when I asked them as a journalist, uh, senior armed forces people, whether um, what they think of the Trident and nuclear weapons, they say we can't possibly talk about it because it's a political uh, issue. It's a political issue, nothing to do with us military people. But of course, Horton, General Sir Nick Horton, the head of the uh, Chief of Defence Staff the other day in the Andrew Marsh show last Sunday, I think, let the cack out of the bag in more ways than one, I hope in a useful way, by being provocative when he said, uh, amongst other things, that um, the whole thing about deterrence rests on the credibility of its use. When people say you are never going to use a deterrent, what I say is you use a deterrent every second of every minute of every day. The purpose of the deterrent is that you don't have to use it because you successfully deter. Now, this is an unanswerable thing because really you, you can... The deterrent, according to that argument, uh, is always going to be successful because uh, it'll only be successful if we don't use it. So it'll, it'll only prove whether it's successful or not if you do use it, because we'll, we'll, we've all had it. Um, Alan West, who's uh, normally not a, a man who sort of minces his ways, words in, a sort of, in this context, said, uh, I think the next day on the BBC Today programme, Alan West being the former first sea lord, uh, said that, yes, uh, Horton shouldn't have said what he, what he said. He, tr he went over, I firmly think, he went over the constitutional barrier by talking about government policy implicitly were putting the boot into Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn, the elected leader of the opposition. And uh, Alan West said, yeah, this is, uh, it is a question of uh, theory. Deterrence is theory. Now, most weapons are about deterrent, of course. When the RAF now, for example, sends uh, fighters to the Baltic to uh, help bolster the morale or whatever, the Poles warn the Russians if they want to start doing naughty things in Estonia and the Baltic, you know, we could do things, credible things possibly, if you bomb, you know, R Russian bases around there. But the point about um, nuclear weapons, uh, I say, they're unique, not because of that you know, de devastating humanitarian aspect or even um, the moral aspects of them, the legality, which I think sometimes you can know, go on about that. Tendum can but no one's going to argue about I mean, you, it, it, international law is, is, is always going to be argued about. But it's a question, really, of hard-faced credibility. And maybe I could quote, I did throw this in a blog uh, the other day, because I couldn't resist an episode in Yes Minister, where Sir Humphrey tells Jim Hacker, it's a deterrent. Hacker, the Prime Minister, it's a bluff. I probably wouldn't use it. Humphrey, yes, but they know that you probably. Yes, but they don't know. Beg your pardon, you see how complicated this is. So Humphrey said, yes, but they don't know that you probably wouldn't. Hacker, they probably do. Humphrey, yes, they probably know that you probably wouldn't, but they can't certainly know. Hacker, they probably certainly know that I probably wouldn't. <laughs> yes, but even though they probably certainly know that you probably wouldn't, they don't certainly know that, although you probably wouldn't, there's no probability that you certainly would. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, the, uh, the whole question of uh, the, the weapon of last resort, there's a very good play about it actually by, by um, someone called, I can't remember his name now, Greg. Uh, we put on the Tri-Score a couple of years ago, which I recommend. It's a very short play. You'll probably get most of the sort of gist of it on uh, through Google actually, the letter of last resort. <coughs> um, 
Harvey, Nick Harvey, Sir Nick Harvey was a Lib Dem Armed Forces Minister, you may remember, who was sacked partly because he was actually opposed to Trident. I think he said uh, on, on many occasions that uh, basically it would not, um, what's the phrase he used, various phrases, but basically he said it's useless, it is not credible. Um, he said it's a, com it is a complete waste of money. Uh, I would say now that the common threat, if there is a threat to Britain, is as we know from terrorism, uh, from uh, all sorts of other uh, non-violent, uh, if you like, or non-military threats like um, climate change and and uh, and so on. Um, and and certainly no. Uh, and, and the British government itself said tier one threat is is terrorism, and uh, and, and cyber warfare, by the way. And uh, these guys who are indulging in cyber attacks, or certainly guys running around, um, charging around in uh, sort of Toyotas around the North Syrian desert are not going to be uh, deterred by, even if they saw one coming, enormous intercontinental trident ballistic missile. The, um, the, uh, Kate mentioned uh, the increasing costs actually put forward by Crispin Blunt, who is a former army officer, now chairman of the Communist Foreign Affairs Committee, who estimated the cost in, in response to a parliamentary, it's a rather hidden parliamentary, complicated parliamentary answer to one of his questions, that it will cost about 167 billion over its 30-year or so lifespan. Um, Trident, of course, the government basically said it's the ultimate deterrent. The ultimate deterrent, but would you spend, as other people have suggested, would you actually spend thousands of, uh, hundreds of billions of pounds on, uh, in, in case Britain's going to be uh, attacked by every possible kind of pandemic? And of course, we, we are not, or any kind of disaster for that matter. And uh, so, so in that sense, uh, the ultimate insurance thing is, I would suggest, uh, what a and a unique sort of pie in the sky, really. What um, ministers, as Kate had also suggested, are concerned about, and the Labour Party in particular, is not about the uh, the real sort of effectiveness or credibility of deterrence, but things like jobs and so on, but also about Britain's status uh, in the event of uh, any unilateral decision to get rid of it. Andy Burnham, I think, during his um, ill-fated uh, attempt to be leader of the Labour Party, said that we must have a trident because uh, otherwise we won't probably be a member of the UN Security Council, but of course, which is that's rubbish because if you to, to, to there's a, a thing called a veto, everyone has a veto, every permanent member of the UN Security Council, including Britain, presumably Britain wouldn't, would, would, would have veto if uh, people said it should get, it should no longer be a Security Council member because it uh, no longer had nuclear weapons. Um, the uh, uh, I got a quote from where from Tony Blair, which Kate, Kate mentioned. Yeah, Tony Blair in his um, in his memoir, uh, A Journey, said the expense is huge. His words: the expense is huge, and the utility non-existent in terms of military use. But in the end, he thought it would it would be quote too big a downgrading of our status as a nation unquote. As Kate also has touched on, that our status as a nation is um, is better. I would suggest. Uh, based on our economic health and what we can do diplomatically, soft power, very important, uh, and, uh, and credible uh, we uh, weapons systems. Uh, Michael Clark, who is certainly not a lefty of any kind, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, said recently, told me, the one thing that politicians don't address when they talk about Britain's nuclear weapons is how they do or don't actually figure in practical defense policy for the next 10 or 12 years. It's really very depressing. Um, 
even uh, Sir Michael Quinlan, who you may know <coughs> was uh, the late Sir Michael Quinlan, who was the uh, Head of Defence Policy Permanent um, Secretary of the Ministry of Defence for a long time, a Jesuit, uh, and sometimes I only say that because he was often called the High Priest of New Deterrence, said, you actually, um, I, I believe the deterrence, he said, morally and every other way, but actually in the end of the day, money, not at all costs, and he meant money and the other pressures on the British taxpayers' budget. Quinlan also, by the way, was uh, was opposed to uh, an, in an increasing uh, doctrine of Bush and Lee Blair of preeminent uh, attacks. So Saddam Hussein is, is a pre um, uh, 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 pre uh, 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 preemptive is the word I'm looking for uh, at attack on Saddam Hussein, and that goes against the whole, if you believe it anyway, the whole question of deterrence, because um, you're not, of course, deterring. I mean, Saddam wasn't not threatening us at all. Um, Owen, uh, Lord Owen, David Owen, uh, the former for Labour Foreign Secretary, said in an uh, interview to a couple of people, John Bayliss and Kristen Stoddart, who wrote a book uh, recently called The British Nuclear Experience. Minimum deterrence is about deterring nuclear strikes against us in Britain. It is not about beating Russia in a military confrontation in which America has backed off. If deterrence has failed, i.e. we have been attacked by nuclear weapons, if our threat has failed, then a response is not automatic, and very few, if any, Prime Ministers would ever contemplate, in reality, nuclear retaliation, not just Corbyn, I suggest. Retaliation is not allowed for, for under the UN Charter. Defence of a vital interest is, it is essential to ensure that people understand that there is no automaticity in UK deterrence. It is a freestanding decision whether to retaliate, Owen continues, much depends on how much damage has already been done and whether you are dealing with a futile gesture. I have never seen what Prime Ministers write to a commander of a submarine, but I'm pretty sure I know what Jim Callaghan, his uh, Labour Prime Minister, wrote, and it was effectively, if there's been a nuclear strike on the UK, you are to make contact with our most important friend and ally, the US, and put yourself under the command and control of the US President. Khrushchev, uh, I'm just about to finish, said to uh, Castro during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 uh, when Castro said that the Soviets should fire nukes, uh, nuclear weapons if the US invaded Cuba with conventional forces. He said this would be the start of, Khrushchev said, this would be the start of a thermonuclear war. No doubt the Cuban people would be heroically, would die heroically, he observed, but we are not struggling against imperialism in order to die. Um, the uh, Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary, has said more than once this year that uh, the future of Britain's Trident nuclear weapon system is the most important issue facing this country. And I think it certainly is, but not in the way I think he meant. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll just take a round of three questions, opening up. Um, back to the panel and then do another round of three questions and we'll run that way possibly for about 20 minutes. So can I take uh, three hands, there's one here, there's one there, there's one there and I'll come to you William in the second round. Uh, oh okay, you're in the second round as well. So why don't you start, where are the two other hands? Yep, um, yep. you and yeah. 
Why don't you start with your first question? Cool. Um, hi. Thanks for your talks. Can you stand up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi. My name is Sankos. I'm a GP in Cornwall. I also hold uh, a U.S. citizenship, and uh, I was interested that you mentioned the U.S. because it seemed to me that that's probably uh, quite a big factor in a lot of these defense decisions with NATO and the ongoing relationship between the U.K. and the U.S. And I thought, I understand BASIC also is active in the U.S., and I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that. Okay, so the nature of the relationship between the U.K. and the U.S. Thanks. I'm Sally Reynolds. I'm a retired GP. My husband goes to lots of football matches and he says for all that Kate says that this is the new common sense that has not got through to the man on the terrace and what he needs is a very simple rebuttal of the oh yeah but we need nuclear weapons don't we just that you know a, a one simple thing that, that we'll get to the crux of it it's like a, almost like an advertising company I mean, can I just add to that? When I speak to my students about nuclear weapons, the response I most commonly get is, well, it's worked. It has worked since <coughs> 1945. <coughs> and so simple robust to that would be useful as well. Yeah. Hi, uh, Duncan McIntyre, retired physician in Glasgow. I want to ask you about the Scottish views on nuclear weapons. Um, there's sometimes a perception that in Scotland, views across the board are different views out of the border. But in fact, that's not true across a range of social and political views, whether it's immigration or economic things. Views north and south of the border are very similar, but views on Trident are quite different. Um, and that's been borne out by polls for some time. And I was wondering about this, whether it just simply reflects that there has been more of a debate and more awareness of the issues in Scotland than there is south of the border. And that's perhaps part of an answer to the last question. The other part of the answer to the last question might be this lovely uh, Let me take one more question, <coughs> William, and then, yeah. Hello, I just wanted to know that the panel thought that this issue is fundamentally, uh, has a lot of the qualities of a religious issue. <laughs> People absolutely believe, one way or the other, it does it have that quality, and, and, not a, and, a, and are immune to reason. Does this issue perhaps have that quality? Okay. Kate, would you like to kick off? Um, yes, um, just on, on the US, um, just a couple <coughs> of things I've seen relatively recently. Um, one was an anonymous uh, sort of US stroke NATO source um, being quoted in the New York <coughs> Times, um, and he said, Britain can either be a useful military ally or it can have nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, relating to the uh, opportunity costs of having nuclear weapons, you know, which has effectively been uh, some tens of thousands of troops, all kinds of military kit, including planes, ships, and so on. So, any sensible defence-minded person is obviously going to bear that in mind if they're not seeing it just in some kind of quasi-religious addiction to nukes kind of way. Um, the other uh, statement recently, I think it was just in the last few days, Richard will probably remember it more clearly, but they did uh, offer some kind of statement which was something like, um, the US values Britain's nuclear contribution through NATO or something, and then the subsequent sentence was, the United States will not interfere in any uh, domestic policy decision in Britain. 
you know, well, as far as I'm concerned, I would like to interpret that as the Americans saying they will not interfere in the Trident decision because this is a domestic decision about how British taxpayers' <coughs> money is spent for the good of the country and its security. Um, this thing about, oh yeah, well, I think one, one uh, answer is, well, having nuclear weapons just makes us a target. There is no way that nuclear weapons anywhere are targeted on any country that doesn't have nuclear weapons. They will be targeted on nuclear weapon states. So that's uh, one thing. Uh, then in terms of this, it's worked thing. Um, I'm with Des Brown on this. Uh, Des Brown was the former Labour Defence Secretary who pushed this question through Parliament in 2007. And he said, well, you can't prove it. No one knows either way whether it's worked or not. You can't prove it, and I agree absolutely with that. You can't prove it. Uh, Scotland, I think that um, the location of Faslane and Coolport in Scotland, um, the submarine base and the weapons, nuclear weapons store, that obviously concentrates the mind of uh, the Scottish people on nuclear weapons. Um, the Scottish Government is against um, nuclear weapons and their uh, residence in Scotland and virtually all the MPs elected to Westminster are opposed to uh, Trident and nuclear weapons in Scotland. So uh, I think it's, that seems to me to be a pretty compelling case that opinion in Scotland, uh, even if it's not more than it is in the rest of Britain, it certainly achieves a kind of public manifestation that we haven't managed to give it in the rest of Britain. And then in terms of um, whether there's some kind of religious uh, element to this, um, I would say that, well, I don't know whether I would use the word religious, but certainly there is uh, kind of an irrational and unquestioning adherence to nuclear weapons in some upper echelons in society. That's my view on it. It's a kind of, some kind of totemic status uh, originating in the Cold War and Britain's kind of colonial or post-colonial status and it absolutely <coughs> has to be challenged because uh, legality, uh, good economic sense, good security sense surely has to trump that kind of unquestioning allegiance. What a lot of questions, good ones too. Um, the US, I see this as basically a symbol of something that goes way back to when the Brits basically gave the empire to the Americans to, for safekeeping. Um, we expect it back someday. Um, this, this relationship uh, is, is a symbolic one of a deep sense of connection. So the special relationship is, is mirrored in the nuclear relationship, the nuclear relationship, the attachment to it is because of this idea that if we let go of this we might let go of all sorts of other things and it starts to unravel very quickly. It's interesting to me that in, in a day when people are when this government seems to be welcoming the Chinese with open arms they, they, they worry about the Americans walking away from a special relationship but they don't seem to have a mirror mirror around that. Um, the the nuclear relationship has got closer and closer as the years have gone by. Bear in mind that in 1946 uh, the Americans actually cl closed it and kicked us all out uh, of that nuclear pro pro program, uh, forcing us to develop nuclear weapons independently and then they welcomed us back in with Polaris. Um, and uh, 
and today we're building a common missile compartment so although the designs of the two different submarines will be a bit different the center is exactly identical they will continue to supply us with missiles so so this and and uh, our nuclear scientists will continue to be the godfathers of theirs and vice versa there is a personal relationship that nuclear weapons is at the heart of um, it's bizarre when you come out a bit because most of the, and this comes to the second question as well, most of the question, most of the, of the defense of an independent nuclear deterrent is based on the idea that it's, in, in, that it's independent, but it isn't independent, it's very dependent. And, and yet, the three countries that have submarines patrolling constantly with nuclear weapons are all, in the, are all in the alliance. So even if you have an idea that you have to have nuclear weapons, why do we, why do, why do we only have to be the ones that are patrolling all the time? In the end, the answer to the question is, nuclear weapons don't work. So the, the question itself doesn't work. Nuclear weapons don't work because actually, even if you believe in deterrence, that you need a credible threat, and this is not a credible threat. A credible threat, if you believe in military credible threats, reside in conventional capabilities. And NATO is the most powerful military alliance that this world has ever seen, and continues to be so, whatever the uh, Daily Mail would have us believe. Um, the record of deterrence, it reminds me a little bit about the way people say, careful climate change may affect us. Climate change is already affecting us. Deterrence has failed on numerous occasions throughout uh, ever since 1945. And I could list a whole load of things. People often, I mean, look at the most obvious, Cuba. We think deterrence worked in Cuba because we're looking at it from the American perspective. But the Soviets backed down. They had nuclear weapons. They had nuclear weapons in Cuba, but they backed down. Their deterrent failed. Nuclear deterrence to work entails one side losing and backing down. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So the, I mean, this, this goes to the heart of the concept of deterrence and why actually it doesn't work. Scotland. I agree with everything that's been said up, up to now, but if there's one thing I would have you remember when you walk out this room, nuclear weapons are not about reality, they're about symbolism. And the reason why Trident is so powerful up in Scotland is that it is symbolic of the power of the English to impose something on the Scots. So whether you're pro or anti-nuclear, you know, you don't like nuclear weapons up in Scotland if you're Scottish. And that's why the SNP have leapt on it so strongly. I mean, I don't question the anti-nuclear commitment of the vast majority of activists in the Scottish National Party, but the reason why it's picked up and run with so strongly is because of the symbolism. And that's why I call it a mental health issue. Because it's symbolic on the other side too. It's, it's all about symbolism. Okay, and then the religious quality. Well, we're, 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 we are actually in a building called uh, uh, of, with the Religious Society of Friends. I'm not going to insult religion because uh, I think religion is actually very powerful and important. But it is like every other political issue. It's deeply emotional. And if we think we can win this argument by logic, we are sadly mistaken. We actually have to appeal beyond towards people's <coughs> understanding that it doesn't work, but also that actually this is about who we are. Are we really a sort of people that think that the only security we can have is by threatening mass annihilation of millions of people? Or is there a better way? And if we subscribe to that vision, we actually have to be credible in putting the steps between here and there.
together. Okay, um, the US, even uh, an all party report by uh, Paul's tried and commission last year, year before, was it? Mm. Concluded that um, Britain could uh, fire uh, nuclear weapons. Because operationally they were, quote, independent from the US, and it would last uh, independently from the US for a few months, mm. but that's about it. Um, the the uh, book has come out called The Silent Deep by Lord, uh, Lord Peter Hennessy and one of others. It's basically a sort of it's a kind of uh, pro-Navy job for the, for the Navy, it's called the Silent Deep anyway. He quotes, uh, Hennessy does, a fellow called David Young, who is um, a senior minister of defense uh, official dealing with nuclear weapons policy for a long time, and he said, he quote, we're very surprised, unquote, if the US president had the capacity to prevent the launch of a Royal Navy missile, quote, but they could do slow starvation ingenuity couldn't get you round the bend, it, it would be finito. Now, the, because uh, the British say that uh, the um, Trident, uh, our Trident missile system is completely independent operationally, that's up to the point true, and the warheads in uh, Aldermaston are made, or the nuclear parts of either nuclear powder, dust, or whatever it's called, I'm not very good at technical stuff, but uh, it's certainly c they couldn't work without American know-how. Now, it just seems to me that it would be politically absurd, I just unimagined that, that uh, Britain would, 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 one would not tell Washington we're about to fire this thing. Um, so whatever you say, um, and that America would say no. Um, but anyway, if America said you can do what you like, our nuclear um, uh, deterrent, so-called, our nuclear weapons would be fired once and, and, and that would be it for us, certainly for all of us. Now the football terrorist thing I think is linked to the faith thing, but really, tribal politics and everything else, and I think it is a question of faith. The terrorist is, is, is actually a question of faith rather than logic or, or political, it should be, or political nous, it should be certainly not a question, a question of, uh, of, um, of, of how money is, is well spent. So it is a point. I mean I don't necessarily agree with, with what Paul just said. I think um, you, you, can, you can appeal to the morality of people if you like, but you've got to also appeal to their hard-headedness. I mean, do we win this argument, uh, do you, we all win this argument through the heart or the head? Maybe a mixture of both. But it is a question, I take the point about religion, it is a question, some, too much in my view, because I hasten to add I'm a sort of secular person, um, it is a question of, of, of faith. And the whole, I was going to say, the whole mad thing in the, in the Cold War, was that faith or not? No, that, that, even that was more than faith, because that had a certain logic to it, actually. On Scotland, um, I don't know, really, but uh, all I'd say is I think it's, the, it's not against so much the English, I think it's uh, partly against this, uh, the symbol, if you like, of the imperial capital, which is Westminster, if as far as uh, if you're in Edinburgh or Glasgow, really, um, and further north. Um, it, it's, it's directed at the British, isn't it, as much as having any, a lot of sense about uh, this being a waste of money and other practical issues. It's a symbol of Westminster, again, uh, and the Whitehall establishment imposing things um, on Scotland. Thank you. Um, got a lady here, lady at the back there, gentleman there, and then we'll go to you, number four. Yeah, you first. Yeah. Yeah, you go first. Okay. Susanna Stooping from Margaret University in Edinburgh. So, in fact, I was going to say something along the lines of my colleague over there from, from Scotland as well, which is really just to mention that it was really partly 
the immense mobilization at the time of the referendum, surely, but it's continued. It's a, a continuing mobilization, I think, of the population, both young and old, and middle-aged, etc., along a range of issues, but particularly around, for our purposes here, Trident, anti-Trident. And I would really reject the simplification of the argument and the debate that goes on about it to purely a symbolic us and them kind of argument. It is much more a mature discussion about do we actually commit ourselves to this ongoing uh, uh, um, idea of <coughs> deterrence? We don't accept it as a deterrent. And also we reject it as a sort of use of the money that we could more usefully use in other things. So as in a sense, I, I thought I would let you get, you know, just be the person to, from Scotland to say, well, yes, we, we have supported that and it's now useful to see that the SNP who had built a very strong campaign, including anti-Trident, but now being joined I think by the Scottish Labour Party because they also appreciate that this is a widely held opinion by you know, the broad um, spectrum of the, of the Scottish population. But on the, the other hand, I just wanted to say to, to um, now that I've had that bit, which I wasn't going to say, um, I do worry a little bit about what's going on in the, in the Labour Party down here because, yes, it's, it's great to have Jeremy Corbyn come in and be very clear about what his position is, but then you get across the Labour front bench and within the constituency Labour Party, almost limited support for that kind of position, constantly sniping in, in all places possible, that of course they don't necessarily agree with Jeremy Corbyn or would never, and they will actually go through <coughs> a wonderful defence review and they will come out at the end with the most uh, appropriate response, which you, s you assume they're going to do everything they can to nobble Jeremy Corbyn away from that position. So quite frankly, I am concerned that you know we rely heavily on the fact that you know there is one there's a grouping within the Labour Party that has actually been able to take poll position for a change who have that position but what is going to happen next with this um, policy review so I would ask colleagues up the front just to comment a bit about what we as it were in you know other supporters party members or whatever perhaps what the Scottish Labour Party could do um, to support this new positioning very much with the French peace movement. And so I know <coughs> that maybe you're aware, there's always this general theory among Britain that we are the favourites of the United States. We are the beloved. 
Well, I'm terribly sorry, but I think the French are as well. <laughs> because ever since our treaty, uh, the um, Tutatis Treaty, which is actually uh, based on that very nice book that you can get for children about the uh, God of War among the Celts, you know, by Tutatis, it's actually Tutatis, uh, we are actually um, bound with them to research nuclear weapons for the next, well, not 50 years now, it's 48 or something like that, uh, at Aldermas and at Dalduc. And so we've actually had this link with the French peace movement campaigning both at Dalduc uh, and at uh, Aldermas, uh, which actually uh, will, will be visited there. Uh, on the, so I think it's a question of identity and why would you place this particular identity there? And the other thing, to pick on to the last point, we'll stop soon, um, the other thing we've got interested in was possibility. Like, is it possible to manage your foreign policy without nuclear weapons? And so we actually had a very interesting meeting in the House of Commons on nuclear exits, that country, that is, nations that had nuclear weapons, and for very, well, various reasons, both political, financial, and everything else, decided that they didn't want them that they were better off without them. They had a very good conference in Helsinki, and uh, what his name declared, he said, I wanted to take this opportunity to join the wider community of nations, and I didn't want to do it with nuclear weapons on, my, on our back. So you see, what kind of policy would we have without nuclear weapons? What would be our identity then? Thank you. I'm not given the time, Chief. Um, I wanted to ask Kate, clarification of where we are in the Parliament. Before I come to that question, I have very mixed feelings today on these very emotional feelings. If anybody had told me I'd be at this fantastic event, I may say, thanks for that. When I was an enthusiastic, optimistic teenager walking out of Trafalgar Square in Easter 1958, <laughs> that we'd still be here on and on and on. We need to go on. Thank God there are lots of young people that live there because I'm getting old. <laughs> so it's a fantastic, but it's a very emotional occasion for me, I can tell you. So, Kate, um, I think you mentioned it. I, some, not very long ago, I was waiting for a decision in Parliament in a cold winter's night. And there were one or two MPs actually in Parliament Square waiting for a decision on Parliament uh, Trident. I've forgotten what that decision was, but now you're saying it's going to be debated again. So I just like clarification. Mm -hmm. We just take one more question. Um, my name is Ariel. I'm a fourth-year medical student from Birmingham. Um, I got into a debate with another medical student recently about nuclear weapons and Trident, and I was using the example of it costing 100 billion to renew, and that just being completely bonkers. And he he retaliated by saying, and this something, I'm, I'm not sure if he made this up or if this is true, but I didn't know the response to it, which is that it would actually cost more to decommission and, um, whatever the word is, um, get rid of it, <laughs> dismantle it. Um, and I just didn't actually have a... <coughs> good. Uh, good question. Great. Thanks. Um, okay. Um, okay. I mean, the friend from Scotland, um, about the continuing mobilisation. I mean, I must say that having watched what's happened in Scotland over the past few years and the kind of enormous energy and 
political engagement of the people of Scotland in all these issues, you know, obviously triggered by the referendum, but the kind of radicalisation around, you know, opposition to austerity and trying to determine what's good for the Scottish people and the kind of whole trident issue within that. I mean, to me, it's been absolutely inspirational and it's been good to see at least some element of that, you know, coming down to the rest of the country. So that's how I feel about Scotland. Um, the Labour Party, um, yes, I can, I can understand um, the, the question there, <coughs> which is about basically that the lot of the, um, the front bench, the shadow front bench are, are pro-nuclear. Uh, um, I would just say that I, uh, my view, my personal view, and I'll explain what it's based on in a minute, is that if there is a full and open debate within the Labour Party, that the Labour Party will decide to change its policy. And that is based on quite a long experience of working with grassroots members of the Labour Party and some Labour politicians. Um, it's also based on um, knowing partly from our lobby of Parliament last week but from other feedback you know, via C&D members lobbying their MPs that a change of attitude is taking place amongst Labour MPs and also an understanding that if Labour Party policy changes and that would be changed by the membership that MPs would change their position on it too because many of them are just loyal to the party policy. They stick with it now but if it changes democratically they will change with it too. Um, and then in terms of this, this sort of grassroots thing I mean, where the policy review mostly takes place will obviously be amongst the Labour, the, the members through the constituency Labour parties. And at the moment, we are engaged, obviously others are too, in a huge number of meetings within CLP Labour parties. They're inviting CND speakers or Labour CND speakers. There's an enormous number of debates taking place around motions, you know, that the CLP will then put to the leadership or the National Policy Forum. And the reports back from everyone so far is overwhelmingly anti-trident. I mean, a, a typical result would be in a meeting of 30 people in the constituency party, uh, 26 would be anti-trident, one would be in favour, and the others would abstain. You know, and that is just a, that's just a typical pattern of how it is. And obviously, in some senses, those are CLPs that choose to have those meetings, so maybe they're the ones who are most concerned about it, but feedback from other people uh, across the party is the same, that the grassroots is overwhelmingly against. Now, when will this review take place? Um, well, I had the pleasure of going to see Maria Eagle uh, on Tuesday at her invitation um, and she said that the process will be launched soon. They hope to do it um, reasonably, well, give it long enough for everyone to contribute, but not so long it just goes into the long grass and gets forgotten about. Um, and that they want to draw that review wider than just Trident, so it's be a wider defence review. And I said, would that include things like Britain's role in the world, or would it be more or less entirely about military procurement? 
and she said you can't possibly decide what kind of kit you want if you don't have a vision and understanding of what you're going to need it for. So I understand it to be a broad thing. And she said that uh, submission, they're going to be open to submissions uh, very broadly. You know, people will be able to give evidence. They haven't worked out how yet. But the sense is that it is going to be a genuine and wide consultation. And then the Labour National Policy Forum uh, will take that up and then it will go to the conference. So who knows if that's exactly what will be happen, but happen, but that seems to be the direction it's going in. And I think that that's um, very positive. Um, and then uh, where, where was that? Well, uh, that event you were at, I'm pretty sure that that will have been March 2007 in Parliament Square on the day that Parliament voted on whether or not the Trident replacement process should begin. So that was a vote put by the Labour government following the 2006 White Paper that uh, the MOD should start looking at the concept of new submarines and at that point it was promised that it would come back to Parliament before they started cutting the metal on the subs and that's the so-called main gate decision that we're expecting next year. Okay. Um, I'll start off with the last question, Ariel, thank you. Um, I was told exactly the same thing to my face by George Robertson and he should have known better because, you know, uh, it, I can understand it in a conversation where people are, are, are not involved in this thing. But, you know, decommissioning costs are huge. They're very expensive, but they happen all the time. We are spending decommissioning costs on submarines at the moment on managing nuclear facilities. Um, it, uh, the, the really big decommissioning cost will be when we come to decommission Aldermaston. Whatever decision is made, that's not a decision for another 50 years because there's all sorts of work and stuff that needs to be done at Aldermaston. And in fact, there's useful work as well, looking forward around how do you um, verify disarmament and, and a whole host of other things. But there is decommissioning costs in Aldermaston going on today as we sit here. So decommissioning is something that happens all the time. It's a necessary part of the, of the system <coughs> where old kit, old uh, buildings and the rest are, are, are cleaned and, and taken down. Um, so, I mean, it, it's complete myth. And then when you start to actually look at the real figures, the amounts, and um, when they come and when they, when they land, it, it is an irrelevance because that decommissioning cost happens over a 20, 30 year period at a much lower annual rate than what they're looking uh, at spending uh, on purchasing new stuff, which will have to be decommissioned in its time. So we're basically, we're storing up future costs anyway. Um, time. Fascinating. I mean, when I got involved in the 1980s, I didn't think I'd even be sitting here because I didn't think any of us would, right? So, you know, that optimistically, we're still here. So, you, you know, it depends which way of the telescope you look at. But, um, but in the end, I think this will be an ongoing issue because it goes beyond just nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are symbolic of a deeper thing, which is our inability to manage relationships between states in a constructive way. I, I'm sorry, that, that, that is with us forever. Uh, 
Now, um, when it comes to labour, I, I'm really encouraged by what Kate says. Um, my, my, my only problem is that all that process will be overtaken by the main gate decision, uh, which will happen before the conclusion of the defence review, um, almost certainly, uh, in which case we'll see Labour MPs voting um, without a whip one way or the other, that's my prediction. And if we're lucky, we'll have half the Labour MPs voting against, half in favour. And, and the reason why Labour MPs vote in favour is not because of favour of Trident, it's not because they're particularly pro-nuclear, with a few dishonourable exceptions, uh, George Robertson being one of them, um, but, but because they, they see this as symbolic. It's symbolic of being strong on defence, and it's symbolic that enables them to have a good career when Jeremy Corbyn leaves the leadership. That's what they're planning. They're looking at their own situation in the longer term and that's unfortunate <coughs> but if as the arguments gather as Kate's um, momentum builds up that she was describing it will become more and more uh, in their interest to think um, to think in other ways um, I can't remember the question but I would say um, sorry no I'll, I'll, I'll answer it the next time Thanks. Now, very quickly, um, Scotland, uh, I, I, when, uh, before the referendum, um, military chiefs, especially army ones, but also all of them here, were saying to me, my God, what the Americans think. Even, quite a few people there in the Ministry of Defence actually don't thought it was good. You know, <coughs> let's get rid of nuclear weapons, some say, very quietly. Um, and, uh, th and then at the end of the day, I suppose you're gonna, you could get um, a kind of enclave, couldn't you, like Kaliningrad. I don't know what the Scots would think of that. But um, that's a possible way out. Someone mentioned treaties over there, the non-proliferation treaties, we know. Uh, is you mentioned treaties, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, behind you, yeah. Um, and uh, that is important. And the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, is every five years, I think, in New York. Um, you know, the rhetoric gets, and there, I think, genuine anger, actually, about the privileged so-called official nuclear weapon states. Um, and and uh, the moral argument, the inconsistency argument, the argument about, you know, why, why do other people have them? don't have them if you say you've got to have them mm. and uh, the whole question of Iran and everything else of that matter um, and the French that someone mentioned you mentioned France too someone mentioned France well, of course one of the reasons genuinely why uh, genuinely why people in the Ministry of Defence uh, and the Foreign Office say we must keep nuclear weapons is because of not only status generally but the French would be the only European country with them and that's you know, well, and that's a serious point actually pride and all that stuff policy without nuclear uh, weapons is, is easy to, to um, to to, uh, to to suggest all sorts of things that could happen. I mean, and we're spending our money on all different things like uh, submarines, con uh, conventional submarines, all sorts of conventional and relevant weapons, drones, which are here to stay, whether people like it or not, um, and all that. Now, the cost of dismantling, just very quickly running through these things as time is getting on, uh, not only cost of dismantling what are already, all the nuclear reactors in, in uh, and, and, and the warhead uh, sort of uh, getting uh, slowly done slowly, 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 whatever they do, rusty or whatever, but also uh, civil nuclear weapons too, of course. Um, civil nuclear power stations, I beg your pardon. Civil nuclear power stations have, have a tremendous amount of um, plutonium <coughs> and, and, and field and all that. I mean, that, that whole issue is it's neither, it's a civil issue as well, it's a general nuclear issue, civil as well as military. And I think what General Nick Horton the other day said to Andrew Marr, that, um, and, and, and he raised this question of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, said he wouldn't uh, wouldn't sign the uh, write the letter uh, because they are genuinely concerned. I think they were genuinely concerned. I mean, encourage what Kate said too. Uh, by the way, I'm talking here as an independent. Not a, I don't uh, I don't write Guardian leader editorials all the time. They're very rarely on this issue. But anyway, um, and uh, I, 
there is this question, I mean, the deep concern amongst labor, uh, I mean, some unions say maybe general problem about jobs, including Woodcock, who's a Tory MP, Labour MP for Barrow and Furnace, where all these things are made. But otherwise, the question is of, of genuine concern about what they'll look like, what public opinion says. Now, I don't know what public opinion says. CND has an opinion poll, someone else has an opinion poll. I mean, there should be a lot more. YouGov had an opinion poll in not, not so long ago, saying that when asked, it depends what question they're asked, of course. Now, if people, if, if, uh, people can say that they're Tory MPs, let alone Labour MPs, um, that this is actually sort of ludicrous and um, a waste of money, and there are alternatives, not just, you know, health service and everything else, blindingly obvious, but also on other weapon systems, because we're not pacifists, um, I think uh, that, that uh, echoes all these concerns are, are, are reflected around the Ministry of Defence corridors, and that's what I think made Horton's uh, remarks, which are quite controversial, of course, and you wish you hadn't said them, I guess, quite telling. Okay, listen, I think we are running out of time. We're going to have another session on this topic um, after the break. The, the reason why is because I forgot to mention that we do have a brief film that's going to be shown by uh, WMD Awareness. It's just going to be uh, fairly brief. Um, but I, I do feel that we've, I think, managed to skate over all the arguments around why we should get rid of Trident, whether it's about appealing to the head or to the heart, whether it's about appealing to our humanity. Um, I think Paul Rogers spoke this morning about the relationship between our weapons, war and climate change. And I, for one, cannot see how we can address climate change if we don't change the way we conduct international politics and the way we conduct international politics in the present moment is a recipe for us not being able to address climate change. So we, we simply have to keep working on this issue. I am full of hope and optimism, as you are, Kate, about the recent changes. Um, I think there is an opportunity um, to gather momentum and, and to make big change happen. Um, and I want the health community to be part of that. We absolutely have to be part of this growing momentum. Um, so MEDAC needs to be part of your event in February. Yes. And all of us working in the health community need to be writing to our MPs. Uh, we should be targeting those that need to be targeted. And we should be shifting opinion within the Labour Party in particular, I think, um, and beyond, obviously. Um, so I hope we will have an opportunity to talk further about <coughs> tactics, you know, how we can be tactical about making the most of this window of opportunity that we have. Um, as I say, we're, we're, we're going to have another session um, after the tea break, but for now, if I can call on Dan to show your, your film. Can, can you just introduce what it is, Dan? Yeah, well, um, it's not necessarily one little film, but... Um, uh, I was invited by uh, Rebecca and Frank Manak to um, just give you a little bit of a rundown on a project that we're going to be doing next year, which is called um, the Nuke Film Fest. It's going to be a nuclear weapon themed film festival. Um, does anyone know the password for this computer? <laughs> um, so, MEDAC, um, some of you may know, are part of the um, steering group of WMD Awareness. So, lots of other organisations like CND. Um, Abolition 2000 um, and MEDAC send uh, representatives to um, our steering group. So they are. So we are kind of uh, part of you 
uh, in a way. And our, our aim is really to um, try and reach out to younger people um, and raise awareness about nuclear weapons. Um, so over the last um, couple of years we've been working a lot with a group of young people. We've got around 20 or 30 um, volunteers who are young people um, who are passionate about this issue and um, who give their time to volunteer with us and try and raise awareness about what's happening. Um, and one thing that we focused on a lot this year is kind of how to use um, popular culture as a way to engage people in this issue. Um, and we all face the challenge of how to engage people. Um, people have mentioned the kind of football stadium example, where lots of um, people are difficult to engage with on, on this issue. So we have started trying to use popular culture and we did an exhibition in Edinburgh which is really interesting um, which sort of showcased some of the popular or less popular examples um, of where nuclear weapons have influenced our media and art. And um, in doing the research I mean there's just so many examples more than I even imagined. So I just thought um, I'd show you a couple of clips one in which you, I'm sure you've all seen one, you know, perhaps you haven't seen, um, of where nuclear weapons have featured in film. And I'll tell you a little bit about the actual project. So here's the first one. Sorry. Sorry. So that was obviously. Um, this one, perhaps, maybe you haven't seen it, but I just thought it was funny. It's, it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Um, but it's also just a funny clip of, of how to survive uh, a nuclear weapon. I don't know if the sound was. It was on second, Okay, well, I guess you don't need the sound to appreciate <laughs> the, uh, the tips it's going to give you. <laughs> There's a siren going off. <laughs> 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 
So that's how to survive uh, a nuclear blast there. Uh, get in a fridge. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, people we found in our exhibition were really engaged in lots of these examples and not very surprised to sort of when they start thinking about how much uh, popular culture um, is influenced by nuclear weapons and how that therefore kind of influences us. So um, with the young people that volunteer with us, we've come up with this project to do um, the Nuclear Weapon Theme Film Festival, um, which we're hoping is going to take place in March. Um, we were doing a crowdfunder, which finished last night, uh, and I'm really happy that I can say we were successful, because if we weren't, it would have been really awkward to <laughs> kind of pitch the project. But um, lots of people really donated very kindly and were able to give us a bit of money um, which we're going to put that on. So we hope it can, we will be organising some screenings but we'll also be providing um, kind of a support pack which will be everything you need to kind of put a screening on in your own community whether that is in your front room or down the community hall or whatever. Um, so yeah I just wanted to tell you about the project and also say you know if anyone is interested keep your eyes peeled and um, it would be great to hear from some of you um, if you're interested in putting on a little event even if it's just for you and your friends um, when that comes around in March um, so you can contact me through um, WMD Awareness social media we've got Twitter or Facebook or um, you can speak to me afterwards and I'll, I'll give you my contact details um, so thanks for having me in Great, okay, so it's fantastic to have um, young people, younger generation getting involved. We have five minutes. So, that I know there was... Yeah, I did want to make a comment, because I've been sitting at the front thinking about that question about the man on the terraces. That's yeah. been going through my head. And I wanted to remember that the time when we were told to protest, protect and survive, yeah, remember yeah. that, McCanway brought out an excellent booklet what people don't understand about other countries they can understand about here and there was the map of what would happen to London and the message was that the entire resources of the National Health Service couldn't deal with the casualties of one single one megaton bomb dropped on London and with cruise missiles here we were expecting 600 megatons that's the message to tell the man on the terrace <laughs> and, and that will certainly be covered in the next session that 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 whole issue did you have a comment sir? any question? no comment again I will speak Sweden um, Paul, Paul Ingram's uh, very important statement that nuclear weapons are symbolic they're not real. And they tell us something about who we are. I, re I refer to a recent book by Elaine Scarry, 
geneticist from Harvard. She has written about thermonuclear um, monarchy. The idea is that all through war is in general against um, democracy. Um, certainly, nuclear war is in a special case. The decision to go to war will rest with one or very few people if it comes to the decision. The decision to destroy mankind will thus rest upon very few people. This is what we have become. So, what Elaine Scarry argues is that nuclear weapons will always be incompatible with democracy. And that's one very important argument. I don't know if it's religious or political or whatever, but some people do react to this. Who are we when we leave it to one person to decide to destroy mankind? <laughs> Thank you. Another argument. Can I just um, say something very quickly? Sure, Richard. Oh, are you finishing? Yeah, we we're going to. We're going to. Well, I just want to say on that co that point about uh, dealing with casualties, and uh, people will say on the terraces, because we've got a nuclear weapon, we won't be attacked by a nuclear weapon. So I think that doesn't go far enough. That argument about being frazzled if uh, we were bombed. We're not talking about. These people who are pro-nuclear terms saying we are not going to be bombed and frazzled because we have our nuclear weapon. And that's the point. And I think therefore comes the point, the symbolism point, as we all said on the platform and other, uh, elsewhere, uh, and the credibility point, the credibility point, would we ever need, would we, could we ever use it? That's the point. Good. Okay, can I close the session? Oh, you, you want to say something? I want to make a quick point about the cultural attachment to nuclear weapons. And I think uh, if you look back 200 years ago, the Quakers, whose uh, building we're in now, had a, a, a divestment campaign, a boycott of uh, sugar, um, to protest against the Atlantic slave trade, which really hit the uh, the slave trade where it hurt. So I hope you'll all come along to the next session to hear about Don't Bank on the Bomb, which is using head and heart, as we were talking about, um, to get to the kind of the addiction that our society has to nuclear weapons as we once were addicted to slavery. And we can get over it, and we will. Thank you, Rebecca. Head and heart. So uh, with that, yeah. can I thank our three amazing speakers, Kate, Paul, and Richard. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, for organizing.